Um, so we're going to continue to worship here through the word. And so um, I, I'm just going to offer a, a word of prayer and we'll, we'll kind of get into it. So Holy Father, we, um, we indeed confess that all we have comes from you. And I just submit, Lord, that all there is to do in this moment is um, to present the wood, to, to, to build this thing, and then you bring the fire. And so I just pray, uh, Spirit, would you stand in my body, think with my mind, speak with my lips. And would you invite us into your love in this time? Amen. Amen. So, um, you know, I'm not really old, although when I do this, you might say, well, there's some evidence of age going on right there as your hair recedes. Uh, But in the course of my life, I have moved a lot. I grew up in a military family, and so... Uh, you know, was fortunate. Some people who grew up in a military family go from uh, one country to another, state to state. I moved around in the course of a city in, in um, Southern California. But then as an adolescent, I moved to Michigan. And then from Michigan, I moved to Indiana, to Texas, to uh, up into Ontario and back to Michigan. And then in the course of Michigan, and as, an, as like I was becoming an adult, uh, moved around for ministry things and found myself here. And my, my, my point is this, that there are some basic principles that happen when you move. And I, I could be off here and they could certainly be filled out, but the basic principles as I thought about it were this, pack, load, clean. On the other side, unload, unpack, clean. My, my whole point in sharing this is there's a feeling that comes when you get to that secondary clean after you have unpacked everything. And I know that there's some of us who you've been in your house for like five, 10 years, and there's still those boxes in the basement that you've not done anything with. Um, perhaps it's time to donate those things. Just Marie Kondo that. And, um, and yet what you can say is there's a moment when the, the spaces that you live in, you're like, ah. Okay, do do you know that feeling? This is me trying to relate to you through an illustration. So I'm hoping that this is, that there's some sort of like a common ground here. You know, that feeling, that that kind of, your capacity to draw that feeling to the fore will serve you as we work our way through our teaching text today. Because there's this, there's this moment when we go, the, the thing that I set out, the intention that I have set out to accomplish has been finished. And so if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to John uh, chapter 19. We're in this little series called Teach Us to Pray where we're, we, have, we're, we have this audacious question that the disciples had is, Lord, teach us to pray. And so I know that some of you have situated yourself comfortably where you are. And so if you are able, uh, would you stand uh, out of honor for God's word? This is, there's nothing perhaps mystical about this, but there's something that we say, we want to respond to God with our bodies. So this is John chapter 19. I'm I'm, uh, picking up at verse 28, reading out of the NIV. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus's lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Um, It is finished. And now I know in the four of your minds, you have that feeling of release that 
Uh, I, I don't know if that is the same feeling that Jesus had hanging on a Roman execution rack, and yet there's some resonance there. You see, these final words of Jesus on the cross, uh, they, they're here speaking to us today. These are the final words that Jesus speaks, and yet there's something that Jesus is actually saying to us today through these, these three words. And interestingly, though uh, it is finished, our three words in the Greek, this... In, in the Greek, the language that the New Testament was originally written in, this is just one word, tetelestai. Give that one a try, tetelestai. So tetelestai, fantastic, Greek scholars you all are. Uh, so tetelestai, it comes from the root tello. And this is actually a word that we see uh, quite often. If, in fact, you use it regularly, and when you say telephone, it's drawing on that root word. So tele, far phone voice. The telephone is helping to draw that far note voice near. Maybe you hear somebody who's trying to sound smarter than they are uh, say, oh, the telos of this thing. They're talking about the end goal of this thing. And tello, it carries with it this idea that something has been accomplished, certainly, but as Jesus uses the term, He's using the term according to its time and its place and its context. And those things matter, especially as we receive these words from Jesus on the cross. It is finished because here it is about a purpose. And so the question that comes to the fore is, what, what is Jesus tapping into? What is the purpose that is being finished? Well, this is, this is curious because when the, the listeners perhaps surrounding Jesus would hear these words, tetelestai, they would be able to draw on that word as a cultural expression. You see, tetelestai was an expression used by artists to signify that their work was complete. So imagine a sculptor shaping something and fashioning it into an image. And then at the very end, there's nothing else left to do. They'd say, tetelestai. Or, or you would have this, uh, for, for example, Tetelestai would be stamped on a document when the charges of a criminal had been complete. That is, they served their sentence. There's nothing else for them to do. It's, it's complete Tetelestai. And then they'd be issued these papers so they could carry these things around. No, no, no. Yeah, I know that was a charge in my life, but now it has been finished Tetelestai. You'd see it in other spaces. You'd see it on, on bank reports when a debt had been paid off, or you'd see it uh, used by a servant to inform their master that their work had been complete. Or this one, I think this would relate to us when an, when an athlete would finish a race and they would, in some sense, like will themselves across the finish line. The lines that would be on their lips were to Telestai. And so when Jesus is on the cross saying to Telestai, it seems as though he's tapping into the undercurrent of all of those images that the, the intention for which he set out to complete is done. It is finished. Uh, but what is it that Jesus has brought to completion? You see, we just read a couple of verses in the New Testament so what is it that Jesus is drawing together? Because if we just think that we can uh, treat the Bible like a devotional grab bag, we will be sorely disappointed when it doesn't give us what we want, namely like a good feeling or some sort of like rush of endorphins, like I feel a peace. Like that's just generally God talk that's not really rooted in reality. So what we want to do is ask these questions. Is there a theme that's been developed that when Jesus says it's finished, we know what he's saying? And, and the answer is yes, because fortunately, uh, the gospel according to John is this brilliant work of literature. And so John has been developing these themes of work that Jesus would do. 
And so we're actually going to trace our way through the gospel according to John. You could flip your way on over to John chapter 1, because John is going to, to look at at least four things, lambs, wheat, healing, and eternal life. Lambs, wheat, healing, and eternal life. And so tomorrow somebody's going to say, so what'd you uh, do this weekend? Oh, you know, just thinking about lambs and wheat and healing, of course, and eternal life. Uh, how about you? Just a standard fare? Yeah. Um, so this is where we're going to start. Lambs, John chapter 1, picking up in verse 29. So after this pretty robust introduction from, uh, in the gospel according to John, we see that Jesus is the word made flesh. We see that grace and truth are resting with and in him. And then there's this moment where we encounter John the Baptist. John the Baptist, if you remember, is the fiery preacher man down by the river. Okay, so this is John the Baptist. And Jesus is approaching John. And these are the words... John 1, 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look or behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now perhaps these words feel really, like really, really familiar to you. Um, just imagine, what would it be like for those words in a crowd of people who are coming to John to encounter the renewal of, of God's kingdom? They're there with expectation and then they hear this. John turns his attention away from them to Jesus. And the question that we have is what is the work? What is it that Jesus has brought to completion? Well, it's actually nested right there within the claim that John makes, that this is the Lamb of God, namely that Jesus is there to deal with what? The sin of the world. He's there to deal with the core hurt, what, what we could think of as being sin sick, this failure to attend to the, the nature and purposes for which we were set out to be, namely to be human. Jesus is to, here to deal with sin. And, and the Lamb imagery can feel kind of odd for us. Um, you know, Griffin's three, and so we have like a number of uh, kids' Bible stories or uh, different things like this, and the lamb imagery is always there. But what's curious to me is, is the lamb imagery, as we encounter it in the New Testament, you have here, and then you have it in Revelation, but the lamb, and sorry, a family-style gathering, but this is a little graphic, but the lamb has already been slaughtered. And so we have like cute lamb chop lammy in mind, and yet the lamb is alive yet has been, there's already blood. So this is, there's some graphic imagery. Well, what's, what's happening there? Well, this would be common for John and for Jesus. Remember, who is John engaging with? This is not a rhetorical question. Who's John engaging with in the day? Jewish people, yeah. So, so Jesus, a brown man from the Middle East, a Jew, they are there. The lamb imagery is like this quintessential, this core Passover figure. And just a little refresher on the Passover. This is when the people of Israel are enslaved in bondage to the superpower of their day, Egypt. And there they find themselves crying out for deliverance. And, and the God of Israel, Yahweh, hears the cries of the people of Israel and he responds. And, and God's, like there's an invitation for the people to be released and there's resistance from the king of Egypt. And so God will then have his justice come to bear so that deliverance will happen. And the pinnacle, kind of the pinnacle of this deliverance comes through the Passover. And the word is actually this Pesach, that, the, that the, the spirit of death would pass over because a spotless lamb had stood in the place. 
The lamb imagery was, this would be the one who would cover over so that anybody who would find refuge in the God of Israel would indeed have that. Their refuge would be secure. And so when we behold Jesus, we actually see the lamb of God, the one sent to deal with the sins of the world. Can you see what John is doing here? Right from the beginning, this is chapter one, he's developing this image of Jesus and the work that he will set out to do. Jesus is the lamb. And that's just the beginning. Go ahead and flip your way on over to John chapter four because we see the wheat. John chapter four is a pretty uh, famous passage in the gospel according to John. This is Jesus with the Samaritan woman. The idea is that Jesus had to go through Samaria. So if you can think, I don't have a map up here. Kate, baby, no map. My goodness, I didn't put it in the notes. So if you can think of the land of Israel, you have the Galilee in the north. You have Judah where Jerusalem is in the south. And then you have Samaria in the middle. And the, the Samaritan people would have opposed or rather they would have been this ethnic minority that when Jews would want to get to the Galilee, to the Sea of Galilee, they would actually go out and around and avoid the whole land. But Jesus says, I'm going to go through. And in the midst of going through, he has this encounter with this woman. It's this scandalizing moment where Jesus is talking to a woman for a Jewish man, a rabbi to talk to a woman, let alone an ethnic minority. But this is, this is just loaded with tension. And Jesus sees this woman, he affirms this woman, he like actually draws her into not just a theological debate, but into a moment of encounter with the living God. And then we pick up in verse 28, chapter four, verse 28, and we see this. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I did. Uh, perhaps like one of the first people preaching the gospel, right, right there. Come, this woman, come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? God's anointed one, the one who will deliver us. And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, you gotta eat something. But he said to them, and check this out, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And I love their line here. They go, could someone have brought him some food? Like, did, they, did he just run down to the bodega? Like, wh where, uh, where, did they get, where did they get the food? And then listen to Jesus here. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. And where are they? They're in Samaria. They're with the marginalized ethnic minority. They are in the place that Jesus says, this is the place that is ripe. So again, what is Jesus's work? Well, look at verse 34, because apparently his work, Jesus of Nazareth's work, is caught up in doing the will of the one who sent me, namely the Father. And this is what is staggering about this scene is that Jesus sees this woman as part of God's work, as a part of the harvest, and her heart was soft to the will and work of Yahweh. So not only is Jesus the lamb of God who's sent to cover the sins of the world to enact God's justice, Jesus is the one who's helping to gather in. He's the chief worker in the harvest, gathering in the unexpected. 
He's the lamb, he's the harvester, and it doesn't stop there. John wants to continue to develop the work. You just have to turn the page, John chapter five, and this uh, is where Jesus comes to bring some healing. And this is what we see here, it's the Sabbath. And I know in, the, in this previous season, we've done a bit of work on the Sabbath and you're welcome to, to go out and read about that or just be like a, a really accessible resource on that is John Mark Comer's The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He draws on a ton of wisdom in the tradition, the Christian tradition on Sabbath. Uh, but but this, is the, this is the tension point, is healing on the Sabbath. And as a refresher, just to remind us what what Sabbath is, because we can kind of have some distortions around this. Sabbath is not a you can't kind of a day. Sabbath is a you are kind of a day. The Sabbath says that you are a person worthy of dignity and honor and rest. Therefore, you are not what you produce and you are not your accomplishments. You are not your adventures. You are not your accolades. You are dearly loved and therefore you can just be with God. The, the people of Israel would observe, they would receive the Sabbath as a place to like receive God's love. So they would do all of this work of preparation to then situate themselves in the midst of God's love. Jesus is there is to, to capture the imaginations of people and remind them what Sabbath is truly about. And this is what we see, John 5, 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, namely the healing of people, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. A little context, Jesus just healed a man who people thought he ought not heal. And in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him And I know just reading from verse 16 to verse 18, you could go, wow, that escalated rather quickly. Uh, Healing on the Sabbath, they're trying to kill him. Well, let's let's see there. Um, Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, in their opinion, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So do you see who Jesus is, is implicating in work? Do you see what's happening on the Sabbath? Like the father is working and Jesus by extension is entering into that work with the father. And this is, this is brilliant right here because this is not Jesus undercutting the wisdom of the Sabbath. This is Jesus saying that Sabbath is the wisdom where healing happens. And so if there are things that people call Sabbath that are legalism, that are actually cutting people down, that's probably not the Sabbath. Like if there's shame because you don't observe the Sabbath in a particular way, that's probably not the Sabbath. There's this invitation to rest that Jesus wants to invite us into that is the liberation from the demands placed on us. And it's also a place where we get to trust that God is who God says he is, our true rest. Jesus, in other words, is saying, I am the true rest. My work is your rest. And then verse 36 brings it all together in this little scene. I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. And remember the work here. Jesus just healed a man unable to participate in community life. And so the work that Jesus is talking about is about the restoration of a whole community. That healing is not just this isolated testimony that then you tell so that you can hopefully have another testimony of healing. No, it's about this person who was isolated being drawn in. 
See, the work that John is doing is saying that Jesus is the lamb who's sent to cover and, and, and to bring God's justice. He's the one who's drawing in the, the harvest from unexpected places, and he's the one bringing healing right in front of you. He is the God of Israel at work in your midst. This is indeed the Messiah. And then Jesus uh, really goes for it with eternal life. So this is in John 17. Pick up with me in John 17. We're just going to read the first little paragraph there. This is John 17, 1 through 5. This is a beautiful prayer of Jesus. Jesus looks towards the heavens and he prays this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those whom you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ or Jesus Messiah whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. See, notice right there in verse four, I have brought glory by finishing the work that you have given me to do. It's as though right here, Jesus is like, he knows there's a settledness in his soul that he has done what the Father has given him to do. He is indeed the lamb. He is the one, the chief worker drawing in the harvest. He's doing the healing, but he announces it here. And what does he call this work? You, you see it there right at the beginning of verse three. What does Jesus call this work? It's, it's eternal life. Jesus is giving eternal life. This is just as Jesus covering, he's gathering, he's healing. And these are all beautiful things, but together they help us see that Jesus's work is moving towards a substantively different way of being human, a, way that, a thing that he calls eternal life. And now, um, when Jesus talks about eternal life, does he mention pearly gates here? No, does he mention harps and clouds? Do you have like some sort of disembodied encounter with the divine? No. No, no eternal life is to know the one true God and Jesus the Messiah. This is, the, the true knowing of God is eternal life. And this is an entirely different way of being human here. So you could say it this way, eternal life is to be held safely and securely in the love of the one true God. And so I love, um, this is a line from Dallas Willow, but he says, eternity is now in session. In other words, the eternal reality, this, this, um, this way of being human has broken into our existence through Jesus of Nazareth. We actually get to see what it is to be truly human, that, that what it is to be held safely and securely in the love of the one true God. I think that's how Jesus can say, before the cross, I have completed the work. Except... We actually haven't seen it yet. And for that, we turn back to where we started, John chapter 19. Jesus is hanging on the cross and it's here that all the work he set out to do is brought to completion. So it's not 
It's not before the cross, but it is on the cross. It's actually the place where he yields his very life into the care of the Father. And it's his, he's dying in the place of others so they may be spared, the Lamb of God. He's restoring humanity to our creator as the place of radical inclusion. That's the place of healing and hope and eternal life. This is where it's finished. See, the, the cross is actually the place where Jesus says it's finished, but it, for you and for me, it's where we say it begins. This is a staggering reality. And the paradox of the moment is this, that Jesus' death is the way to life. This is actually the core of the Christian faith. This is what we gather to remind ourselves that what may seem like death in Jesus' name is the way into life because this is, this is the, I guess, the beauty and the frustration of the gospel is that death doesn't have the final word. And you're gonna hear me say that today. I've said it before. I hope that I say it until I draw my last breath that death actually doesn't have the final word. That is the resurrection hope. And so we sit here in the midst of Jesus's words, and yet what does it mean that death is the way that Jesus says it's finished? And I, I love the way that uh, Catholic writer Ronald Rollheiser helps us to get our minds and really our arms and our whole lives around this paradox. And he, he does so with a flower. So if you look to your left, there's some artist renditions of flowers. Those are paintings that are just up on the wall, but what is it? What is the ultimate moment of the flower? Is, is the ultimate moment of the flower when it's in full bloom? Like my inclination would be to say, yes, the ultimate moment of the flower is when it's in full bloom. But according, according to Rollheiser, the, the, the ultimate moment of the flower is when it dies and gives its seed. That there's something more to the flower than the beauty of its bloom. And he says it this way, relating it to Jesus. On the cross, faithful to the end and to his God, to his word, and to the love that he preached, and to his own integrity, Jesus stopped living and began dying. And that's when he gave off his seed. And that's when his spirit began to permeate the world. So it's actually, Jesus will say things like this prior to the prayer he prayed in John 17. It's better if I go away. It's better that I go away because there's something. I'm gonna send my advocate, the comforter, my very personal presence. See, when the soil of our hearts are soft like the Samaritan woman, the, the seeds of new life that Jesus is giving off on the cross actually have a fertile place to go in and do some stuff that is to bring forth life. And you may be wondering, what in the world do these three words have to do with how I pray? <laughs> it is finished. Are you expecting me here to like go Pentecostal and start declaring these things in faith? Like, yes, it is finished. Maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit of saying like, no, no, indeed it is finished. But, but rather that is to square yourself in what the true reality is. Because it is finished is where our prayer begins. We've had moments throughout this, like this series where we've been able to take up Jesus' words and receive them as our own. And then we've had other moments where Jesus' words just show us how to pray. But in this moment, this is where Jesus' words release us to pray. This is to say that Jesus has done all of this so we can rest securely in his love. And if we're honest, 
like some of us hear this and we go, okay, so this feels like I should pray. This is not me shooting on you. This is not Jesus shooting on you. This is not us saying, okay, yeah, yeah, I know I should live more out of my identity in Christ. I should pray more. I should abide. No, no, no. This is not a place of shame. This is a place where we get to move from the shoulds of the world and we get to live into the get-tos of Jesus. We actually get to receive a new way of being human. It's I must. I must do this. It's finished, therefore I must. It's finished, therefore I get to. It's finished, therefore I participate. And and so I just want to invite us into these things. And I just, uh, if you would, you could stand with me. Um, because the question is, how do I practice this? This is actually where you start to preach your best sermon over your own soul. And you might say, Kyle, that's really weird. What do you mean I preach to myself? Yes, the psalmists do this all the time. You turn to Psalm 146, the psalmist says, I praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Like, Everything that's in me. And then the, the prayer that follows is this beautiful place of reminding the person, the psalmist of the character of God. So how do we practice this? These won't be over the screen. I just, I just want to speak these over you. And so perhaps this feels a little uncomfortable and maybe that's a gift you could give, I don't know, to, to Jesus just to say with your hands open, like a posture of receiving. Um, that this, if you indeed are in Christ, that you have said, like, I want to be with Jesus, this is what the living word speaks over you. This is what it means to begin to pray out of a place where Jesus says it's finished. You are now the salt and light of the earth. You have been given a spirit of power and love and self-control. You can find grace and mercy in your need. You are hidden with Christ in God. You are complete in Christ. You have been redeemed and forgiven of your sins. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You are a citizen of heaven. You now know that God will bring to completion the work he started in you. You can approach God with freedom and confidence. You are God's very workmanship. You are the one on whom his delight is set. You have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. The Father's love has been poured abroad into your heart. You have been adopted as God's child. You are a saint, a minister of reconciliation. You are a new creation, established, anointed, and sealed by God. You are a member of a new body, the family of God. You have been bought with a price and you belong to God. You are a temple, the place where God's very presence resides. You are working and participating with God. You cannot be separated from the love of God and you have been chosen. God's delight is over you. This is who you are. How, how do you begin to, to pray as from the words of Jesus, it is finished? Well, you have to know who you are first. If you're going to preach to your soul, you have to know who you are. You have to know how Jesus sees you. This is who we are, church. This is actually the gift we have to give to our neighbors, to our families, to our colleagues, is that we get to live from the words of Jesus, it is finished. And whether that gift, that, that feels like a seed that's blossomed and you can see the, the, the fruit of the new life of Jesus, or you feel like that seed is cold and dead and dormant. You know, some seeds actually have to die before they'll give new life. So just remember that feeling when you have everything or at least most everything put away in your home after you've moved in. 
that feeling of rest, of like it's finished, I can finally begin to live here. Just draw that, draw that to the fore because that is the invitation of Jesus to, to, to begin to worship out of that. And so I just wanna invite... You.